incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is Kuss. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. You boldly go where no man has gone before. And welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Well, folks, he is the chairman for TrekFest, one of the oldest Trek events in the United States. From Kirk's future birthplace, Riverside, Iowa. It's Travis Riggin! Yeah! <laughs> How you doing, man? Good. How are you, Todd? Thanks for having I me on. Am, oh, thank you so much for coming on. I got to imagine uh, right off the bat, let's just dive right in. I imagine with something like Trek Fest um, and and you and you're and you're working a nine to five as well. I imagine your schedule is probably pretty packed. Yes, <laughs> very much so. You know, um, planning Trek Fest that that is a couple hours, you know, each night kind of either indulging in some Trek lore and getting really in depth in that so that way i can be a good vessel of our event so then let's just go from the beginning of the day you know it's like work nine to five like you said waking up at 5 45 and then from three o'clock on um i coach high school golf for boys and girls i have 20 plus kids out um so you know spend about two to three hours out there on the course with them over the course of um the spring months here and come home and got um baby on the way as well so we got that going on so oh congratulations yes yes um it's is it your first first and it's gonna be a little boy um oh, we, that's we're super great. excited yeah town name i tried to say like what about james t kirk and she's like no that's not gonna happen <laughs> we shot that one in um however the middle name's gonna be scott um so we can go by scotty maybe in the middle of course that, that'll be yes. cool <laughs> I have yeah. a friend of mine. Uh, I have a friend of mine whose uh, whose daughter, um, it, her name is Clementine. But I'm a big fan of the show Thirty Rock, so I always call her Lemon. So anytime she's, you know, and she's a kid, so anytime she does something childlike, I always go, "Oh, good God, Lemon!" <laughs> um, so, man, that is so great. Thank you so much for carving out the time uh, to come and sit and chat with me. Uh, let's dive in where, uh, how did Trek Fest start? Like, where did you come into, come into play as the chairman of Trek Fest? Like, where did this all begin for you? Growing up in the town of Riverside, Iowa, um, we are the self-proclaimed birthplace of Captain James T. Kirk based on a Gene Roddenberry bit that was put out there. Um, you know, he said that James was from a small town in Iowa a resident of the town and member of city council. Um, Steve Miller presented the idea amongst the council and said, Hey, I think being our town celebration currently right now doesn't really have a, a theme and an attraction to bring people to town. Why not be that small town? Why not be that small town in Iowa to be that claim to fame of being the future birthplace of captain James D Kirk. That's so cool. (laughs) So cool. 
So yeah. cool. So that that happened in the um, mid 1980s. Um, I believe it was 1985 that was presented to the city council. And the event's gone on ever since then after reaching out to Gene Roddenberry and asking, hey, can we be that small town? Like, will you let us be that crazy small town that you had no idea in um, cornfields and beans that a small town in Iowa would say, we would love to throw on the check trek ears and um be really about that so that's kind of where started led up there um and where i came into it parents are very very involved in the community growing up um my dad when shatner actually came to town william shatner he was shatner's personal assistant for 21 days during the reality show invasion iowa that took place in town so got a firsthand meet william shatner wow (laughs) another really cool thing that is kind of a fun thing to say um he came and visited our house. He used some of the amenities in our house, sat on our toilet. And so I can personally say that I've shared the same toilet as William Shatner. So, um, that is awesome, dude. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool thought. And granted, I think it was kind of a him like sitting on there in the jeans saying thing, but it still counts. Hey, absolutely. Still. So when we moved out of that house, my parents and I, um, my dad's like, Hey, super weird. We're taking the toilet seat with us. You can have the toilet, but we're keeping the toilet seat. <laughs> we still got the toilet seat. Um, but yeah, it, it's just super funny to like say like, you know, um, Shatner was in our house. Um, long story to get back to like where I became involved as the chairman of Trek Fest. Um, I like to say it is in the most Trek Fest and like Star Trek theme wise is it was time for the next generation to step up. Ah. In order for this festival to go the next 20 years, to go the next 30 years, 40 years, we have to tie on to the new episodes and the new series and really, really embrace that. Bringing celebrities into our festival that are not not fully getting the screen time as they once were, um, that don't have the name recognition possibly for a new Trek fan. The old Trek fans are still watching new Trek more than likely. So... Mm. The, the big thing is, is that someone that's new to Trek may not dive back into old Trek because of the graininess or, you know, some of the effects. And but some people might look as the, like the vintage nostalgic, like, you know, this is the lead up to it. Um, right. Which is kind of where we're at. And it was the changing point um, in order to get some of that new new Trek and celebrity fame and status into um, the, the event, which that's what I wanted to bring. So last year, our t-shirt design kind of had the next generation, but it said the Riverside shipyard in it. And it had our sponsors on the back, um, going newer, you know, making sure that we're, we're thinking of podcasters and really embracing, um, the cosplay culture and allowing, you know, people in their fandom to, to really take place. You know, when you come into our town, you're able to experience a very up close and personal like event and, get really, really engaged with the celebrity in the sense of you don't have a partition, you don't have a wall. It's something that, I mean, you're able to have a conversation. You're in Iowa. You're not in a town of 50,000, 100,000, 1 million. You're in a town of 1.6,000 people at most. Um, So 1,600 people live in this town. And what comes to town is probably 3,000 people during the event. So 
at any given time, we might have 5,000 or less people in town. And Ooh. that's what you, what you get to appreciate when you come to a festival as small as ours. Granted, you don't have, you know, 20, 30 celebrities here, but Hey, we'll have one. We'll have one that you get to know over the course of a weekend, you get engaged with them. And I, I want to say that this is probably one of the most um, up close and personal experiences, probably other than the Star Trek cruise that you can actually be with a celebrity. And I've never done that personally. Todd, have you done that? I haven't done the cruise just yet. I, I was involved with uh, Shuttle Pods uh, first anniversary event that they had. Um, but of course, that was in Los Angeles. And a lot of those actors still live, you know, live and work in L.A., so, but they're, they're, they're of the same mind where, you know, I, and I've been to an, enough of these conventions to know, um, even, even outside of Trek, you know, talking like comic book or pop culture conventions, you get these, um, you know, these legendary figures in whatever field they're in, you might get 10 to 15 seconds with them. Maybe you might get them to sign something, catch a selfie and that's about it. But honestly, it is worth the travel. It is worth the admission, whatever it is to have that sort of one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody and talk to these really interesting people uh, who have been uh, on the front lines of bringing this fandom that so many people love the world over to life. And it's been really, really fantastic. Yeah. And with the Star Trek cruise, the reason why I brought it up is, I mean, as close knit as you can be with the celebrities, I feel like yeah. you're still a little far away from them. Like mm. there's certain events that bring them out. But yet again, it's like how maybe how often do they come off their pool, their their own deck, their private balcony that they have if they're not at one of those like events, meet and greets. I don't personally know, but I like to think, you know, for the amount of time that we have this celebrity over the course of the weekend during Trek Fest, um, we really focus on high engagement activities where you can be in the same vicinity. You can be within, you know, um, if you're getting your picture autograph, you know, you can be right up next to them, you know, but other events, you know, you're within a hundred feet of them. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you for continuing to make Trek Fest one of the biggest, uh, one of the oldest, really intimate experiences that a Trekker can have here stateside, at least. But let's let's dive a little bit deeper on you for a second with your you and your family's involvement in Trek Fest. Do you have a particular favorite era of Trek or a favorite show specifically? So personally, for me, my favorite would be Kelvin Timeline. Yeah, 2009. The reason why I it resonates so well with me, I mean, J.J. Abrams did a really good job with that. I know some people will say like, Oh, flash Abrams a little bit, you know, like, but <laughs> he killed it. Yeah. It was a very well done movie. The cast was great. It, it was unfortunate about, um, check off that has passed away. Yeah. It'll be yeah. interesting to see what direction that goes in the future for the movies. If there are new ones. Hey, mm -hmm. I hope that there are, I it's in the rumor mill that I keep on seeing it. It's like, let it out, like get these guys signed, you know, let's bring everyone back in. But um, for me personally, it it really brought it full circle for me to see the future birthplace, like be recognized in that movie saying, you know, somewhere in Iowa. And then the bar that was in there be the Riverside Shipyard. And then 
or actually it was called the shipyard. And then the actual shipyard was the Riverside shipyard where the enterprise was getting docked and repairs done for its maiden voyage, you know? Yeah. And you got to kind of know Kirk and his rebellious side and you got to know that relationship between Spock and him. And yeah. you, you really got to see the characters develop their relationships with the other characters on board, you know, mm. Scotty and Kirk and then the bones and Kirk, you know, and then the dynamic of Kirk and Spock, even the evil villains and the antagonist. I mean, that they knocked it out of the park with those characters throughout all three of those movies, you know, yeah. um, they did a really good job. And if I was to lean towards a, um, you know, strange new worlds is, is really good too. I I'm enjoying that. And I love the, the little um, Paul Wesley um, teaser at the, the end of it there of the first season there. Of course. <laughs> I think that was huge for um, Riverside and Trek Fest as well. Um, saying, Hey, where are, you, where are you from Kirk? You know, um, that engagement between the Pike and him and dialogue. And he's like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm from a small town in Iowa. <laughs> yeah. I think we're on a good direction for, for Trek and, you know, we're putting out good content too. And that's, that's good. Right. Yeah. I, that was, you know, you, that's a perfect lead into my next point is, you know, with you being such a big fan of the, of the Kelvin timeline, which is a great jumping on point for folks. It, it really kind of, Hey, remember back in the sixties, we had these three seasons of this show. Well, we've packed a bunch of it into three movies and you're going to, you're going to dig it. And not only were they able to really maintain the spirit of the original series, but they were also able to tie in a bunch of lore from established canon, you know, over the past 50 some years. So it was, a, it was a really nice tie-in. And I've mentioned a couple times before that new Trek, starting with Discovery all the way up to uh, Strange New Worlds, really takes cue from the visual aesthetics of the Kelvin timeline. It, I think Trek now is definitely the most cinematic that it's ever been. And, you know, the evidence is clear in Discovery, obviously. But let's look at New Trek as a whole for just a second. Do you have, uh, you mentioned Strange New Worlds. Everybody seems to be loving Strange New Worlds. And yeah, it's a, if you dig the Kelvin timeline, like Strange New Worlds is kind of a perfect companion piece for that. What do you think of the rest of New Trek? You've got Discovery, you've got Lower Decks, you've got Picard, um, you've got Prodigy. Uh, have you have you watched any of these? Do you have any thoughts on the rest of New Trek? I, I think that the animation side of it with the, you know, um, the Cerritos and the characters in that, you know, yeah. you have a lot of good ships too as well, like good looking ships. Yeah. <laughs> and for the below decks there, you know, with that that series, it it's it's one of those things where so many people are watching animation stuff like um, Rick and Morty or The Simpsons or Family Guy and, you know, maybe Futurama. It really kind of um, it kind of upscales the um, I don't want to say the language that like profanity that might be used in some of those. And like it's not nearly as bad. It's kind of borderline and never really fully like crosses that. It mm -hmm. does expose you to certain things like I believe it was J.G. Hertzler's character um, in there. He um intoxicated on the shuttle and you know um if yeah. you remember that episode so i do <laughs> there's, there's things like that that are just like humorous you know um but it is something that i believe pg-13 so it's something that does take a little bit of 
age to probably get some of the jokes and process, but like the prodigy, like the thing about it is, is if you look at Star Trek as a whole, what were they not doing leading up to this point? And they weren't targeting a demographic to get somebody a lifelong Star Trek fan. Yeah. Where Star Wars was doing something and something that Star Trek has not done yet, which I think that should be looked at is action figures being able to be played with by kids, like having something that they can get their hands in at like a Walmart or a, you know, target or something that they go through a kid's aisle. And it's like, you know, that's different. That's not a, like that guy has a phaser. It's not a lightsaber. It's, you know, it's not, we don't have readily available like material for kids to get their hands on until prodigy. Yeah. And you know, like even still a gentleman that you brought on um, from Omaha with mini Trek um, it, until him, like the only way to really go about building something is to get a knockoff kit, you know, from overseas and you're maybe engaging like material that might not be as good. However, if you come to Riverside, we do have a pretty good um, Lego, not Lego, mini or mock block Lego set that embodies our USS Riverside. That's that's, that's awesome. pretty well. But yeah, so I mean, the biggest thing is getting getting younger people engaged in Trek sooner. Our platforms are getting better. I know that our Paramount Plus app has a lot of material on there that can be seen and get you exposed to Trek. And so with, you know, those two, the animation side of it, I think they pair up really, really well in the sense it's like, you know, this is kind of maybe the teen side of it. It's like exposing you to the, when I was growing up, like the thing on Comedy Central would be like, oh, South Park's on. We got a new episode of South Park. And it's like, I better not let my parents hear me watching this possibly. Like, am I getting in trouble? <laughs> but this doesn't really... It, it teeters that line, but it doesn't cross it in a way that you would get in trouble for watching this. I don't feel. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right there. Uh, you know, uh, to sort of encapsulate it, I feel like now more than ever, uh, especially with like five different Star Trek shows in production at one time, there is a Trek out there for everybody. You've got discovery, uh, which is great for new fans and, you know, folks that got introduced to it through the Kelvin timeline uh, for the folks who have been around for a while, who who remember uh, the TNG era or legacy Trek, you've got Picard and you've got strange new worlds. Both of those are kind of, you know, strange new worlds is kind of a great entry point for new fans, but it's also very nostalgic for older fans. Picard is clearly a love letter to uh, the legacy era of Trek for sure. And then, yeah, you've got helmed by Rick and Morty producer, Mike McMahon, Lower Decks, which has been doing great things and actually showcasing a different side of Trek, the comedic side. And then you've got Prodigy. Prodigy is, it's clearly geared for younger viewers, but honestly, there's enough, I'll say Trek goodies and Trek goodness, Trek Easter eggs in there, if you will that it appeals to older fans as well. I watched it just because, I mean, you know, I'm doing the show and everything, but I was like, okay, let's, you know, I'm down to see what this is about. And it started off kind of a slow burn, but then, you know, things took a turn there. And I was like, oh, they're doing some really interesting, exciting things with this crew of young kids who got their hands on a Starfleet vessel. So it's it's been a really fantastic uh, journey to see all the different treks out there. And like I said, it's kind of like a mood ring. Like there's a trek for every mood now. 
So let's get into discovery a little bit. This episode here, we are still at the top of season two. This is only the fourth episode in season two, an O-Ball for Charon. You know, we're getting into, you know, we're past that first hump, that first season. Okay, we're getting our feet, you know, we're getting our feet wet here. Let's see what this is all about. And now we're kind of into the nitty gritty of season two. What did you think, you know, staying spoiler free for now, what did you think about this episode, uh, you know, upon your first viewing and viewing it for this podcast? Like uh, any sort of thoughts about O-Ball for Charon? You know, for me, this episode really dove into certain characters' personalities and Mm, discovered who was the kind of people that were willing to go a little bit out of their shell and maybe go out of the scope of their role on the ship. Yeah. Also the building blocks for certain characters like Tilly leading up through the, the whole series. I think that she through this episode, as well as other episodes going forward has a bigger role that starts to stair step from this point Mm. because why Tilly you know for the spoiler side of it I don't want to dive too big into it but like why was she the one that was chosen off the ship to be um embraced by the episode's antagonist and also to see the crew kind of react to scenarios that they're put through through this episode you kind of see what role they play as well as how they problem solve yes and it really is a good, solid episode. I think that, you know, some episodes you might be able to like skip over, but I don't think that this one you could. Yeah. Uh, you know, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I, I think it is worth noting that, yeah, we see some interesting, I'm a big fan of watching the characters interact in these little, you know, these little pairings that you got, like, for example, uh, Stamets and Reno in engineering, both of them phenomenal engineers, but their personalities couldn't are oil and water. <laughs> Definitely different. Like one is super, what I would say like, would remind me of like a Riverside shipyard crew member. Yeah. And the other one is like an LA crew member that got together. Yeah. They're a clashing dynamic. And that, that even goes for, um, Burnham and, um, Saru. So even in that situation, like you kind of see these character dynamics start to kind of bridge and where that relationship, there were a bit tension. Now it's kind of unity going through problems. Yeah. And I think, you know, acknowledging the differences and acknowledging past difficulties is a great first step to sort of bridging that gap of like, Hey, we're, we're very different people, but Hey, let's, let's lay our cards on the table and sort of make this connection here. I remember when uh, the episode where Pike, uh, well, it was uh, only three episodes ago, Pike was, you know, first taking command of the discovery and he goes onto the bridge. uh, You know, they switch the computers over and everything and his service record pops up on the screen and people like, oh, sorry, you know, and he goes, no, that's okay. Let's take a look. And he points out his accommodations. He also points out his bad grades. Like he points out his childhood asthma and he goes, listen, I know you guys have just been through a pretty serious ordeal. Let me reassure you, I'm not Lorca. And that was 
a really great introduction into the character of Pike, but I think it also sort of, he made in that little speech, he made a bridge to each person that was within earshot of him talking on, on the bridge. So uh, yeah, being able to acknowledge those things, acknowledge differences, I believe is a good first step in a lot of this different stuff. But yeah, we are seeing, you know, this is where, um, you know, we're kind of still on this search for Spock and stuff's going on with Tilly and we're still dealing with stuff in the mycelial network. There's a lot of stuff going on here, but before we get too much further, let's get to this week's recap. Brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, Rev J, Jerry Antimano, Cosmic Crit, Kitty B, and David Willett. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Something has us locked in a place. I could fly in a web. Get down! My people have a condition. It is terminal. Death is inevitable. You are my family. After everything that we have been through, we are not going to let you die. In Discovery's transporter room, Pike greets Una Chin Riley, his first officer from the still-disabled Enterprise. Una reports on Enterprise's repairs, then discusses the allegations against Spock, which, since Enterprise has been in space dock, Una's had time to investigate. She adds that Starfleet's placed a level one classification on Spock's case, and believes something's not adding up. They agree they don't intend to let Spock go without a fight. Meanwhile, In engineering, the parasite removed from Tilly is in the quarantine chamber. Stamets remarks it should be given a name other than May, and while it looked like a formless blob, it's sentient and has intentions. The mycelial network didn't just connect life, but contained it, like an incubator. Tilly wonders why it appeared to her as May Ahern, leading her to think she's not been the kind of friend May needed, not even knowing she was dead. Meanwhile, in the ready room, Burnham reports she cross-referenced the Red Angel with the Federation database, Zilch. Detmer speculates it may not be a species at all, but a unique individual. Reese believes figuring out its connection to the signals would help identify it. Nan wonders what the angel needs. Saru has a cold. At that moment, Pike enters and orders the crew to stations, telling Detmer to set a course 108 Mark IV. Pike orders Saru to rest, tells Burnham Una had given him the warp trail of Spock's stolen shuttle, and that they're on an intercept course. Burnham believes her involvement in contacting Spock could make things worse. At that moment, Discovery is violently pulled out of warp. Returning to the bridge, Pike orders a red alert. Wosakun reports shields are inoperable. Detmer's helm is unresponsive. What's not damaged? Air conditioning is fully operational. Like a damn fly in a web, Pike says, just as Burnham points out the spider, a massive sphere. And on that note, we cue the music.
Based on their highly sophisticated scans, Burnham indicates that the sphere is big and old. It hasn't responded to any hails, but is vibrating, which the computer translated into noise. Whatever it is, it has Discovery locked in place, and Pike orders Burnham to find a way to communicate with it or disable it. Burnham acknowledges his order in Klingon. Pike asks in French why she's speaking Klingon. Bryce explains in Welsh that the sphere answered their hails, resulting in the cacophony. Burnham calls Saru to the bridge. As he enters, Pike welcomes him in Hebrew to the Tower of Babel. And Burnham, in Mandarin Chinese, remarks that Saru knows more languages than anyone in the ship. He replies he is fluent in 94 languages. Well, Burnham then explains, now in Spanish, that the ship's universal translator has been infected with a computer virus. Saru activates the backup bridge translator. However, Detmer reports her console is in Tau Setian. Burnham believes she can purge the virus from the translator's main interface. Though clearly unwell, Saru offers his help, remarking that Burnham would need a translator just to operate the turbo lift. Meanwhile, in engineering, Tilly reports their section is unaffected by the virus and that she will report if anything changes. Pike tells Stamets that if they can't get away on conventional drives, they'll need to use the spore drive. Stamets acknowledges and orders Tilly to bring the drive online. Reno enters the room humming to herself, reporting that the universal translator for that section was Nomas. She mentions that the chief engineer wanted her to firewall off the critical propulsion systems, but didn't think a greenhouse counted as either critical or propulsive. But what do I know? I'm just a gearhead, not a farmer. As she works, Reno debates with Stamets on the reliability of the standard antimatter and dilithium propulsion compared to the spore drive, mocking Stamets for thinking he can run a ship on mushrooms that I pick off my pizza. Stamets retorts with the comparative cleanliness and renewability of the spore drive compared to its conventional warp drive, the ecological ruin of dilithium mining, and the battles fought to corner its supply, and how pollution nearly destroyed Earth two centuries earlier before everything was converted to solar panels. Reno remarks she could fix things with duct tape, if he preferred. Tilly then speaks up, asking if May had something to do with the sphere. Stamets sarcastically retorts that a giant creature from their universe and a being from the mycelial network had about as much in common with himself and the grease monkey Reno, to which Reno adds she could fix that analogy with duct tape as well. Meanwhile, At the computer mainframe, Burnham and Saru, now conversing in Russian, have isolated comms and managed to restore the universal translator on all decks. Just as Burnham reports their success to the bridge, Saru collapses to the deck, clearly ill with more than simply a cold. At that moment, the deck heaves violently. Burnham calls the bridge, asking if the sphere fired on them. Awosakun reports it did not, but the virus is spreading and causing the EPS conduits to overload. While Saru wants to return to the bridge to find out what was happening, Burnham instead takes him to sickbay. Meanwhile... In engineering, the power surges, releasing bolts of energy through the local relays. The computer seals engineering to contain the damage, 
But while life support is operational, Reno warns that the energy could ignite the oxygen in the air and cook them like french fries. Tilly suggests diverting the power to act as a lightning arrester. Reno adds that the door could act as a ground and disperse the energy through the frame of the ship, but getting it from the relays to the door was the trouble. Stamets suggests linking the spore canisters as a makeshift lightning rod. Reno holds the transfer conduit up to the door. Tilly hits the switch. The power surge knocks them off their feet and briefly disables the lights. As they flicker back on, Stamets and Tilly check on Reno, who remarks she had a strange dream about playing drums for Prince. As they help her up, Stamets realizes May has escaped the quarantine chamber. May then attaches itself to Tilly's right arm and won't let go. Meanwhile, Pollard's scans show Saru's elevated heart rate, spiking adrenal levels, and increased neural activity, remarking that the amount of pain Saru was in would render most humanoids unconscious. Saru's threat ganglia extend, and he reports he keeps seeing flashes of ultraviolet light, which Kelpians can see while humans can't. He admits the condition is unique to his people, and that it's terminal. Saru believes the sphere triggered Vahari, a biological process which signals when Kelpians are ready to be called by the Ba'ul, the predator species on his homeworld of Kaminar. While there are no Ba'ul present, Saru marks that Kelpian ganglia are only so inflamed when they are near their end, and that those who undergo Vahari are either killed by the Ba'ul or succumb to madness. Either way, Saru says grimly, death is inevitable. Meanwhile, Tilly, with May attached to her, is placed within the quarantine chamber. Stamets tries to contact the bridge, but comms, as well as most of the ship's systems, are down. Tilly begins drifting in and out of consciousness, remarking in a daze that she should be scared, but isn't, and that May means her no harm. Stamets asks if she's able to see May, and how she could know that May was benign. Tilly says May was clingy and wouldn't shut up. She thought that May needed her help, referring to the plan that May needed her help with. From his scans, Stamets realizes that May is releasing a hallucinogen into Tilly, influencing her emotional state, perhaps to keep her calm. Reno wonders if it's a way to keep her from fighting back. Meanwhile, Back in sickbay, Burnham speculates that if Saru believes the sphere triggered his Vahari, escaping from it could stop the process. Pike reminds her this would mean regaining control first, but the computers are unreliable, and without computer control, primary systems could start failing, including the warp core. If the sphere had intended to destroy them, Burnham wonders, then why the slow attack? Saru suggests creating digital antibodies as a means of slowing the virus's progression, but that would take time. Working together to create the antibodies, they're able to slow the virus's progression, with life support stable at 47%. When Burnham says Saru doesn't have to go through this alone, Saru admits his difficulty explaining how he comes from a race that submits, and how hiding is in his nature. He's learned so many languages, but never shared his own for fear of exposing his alienness. Saru says his life began when he was granted refugee status by the Federation. While at Starbase 7, 
he saw different life forms from across the universe with far less than he had, but with a dream of something better. He listened to their stories, which led him to join Starfleet so he could help others like he was helped. The one caveat to that, however, was that he could not go home again. He asks Burnham to help catalog his detailed personal logs since joining Starfleet so that the Prime Directive would no longer apply to his people. Moved by the request, Burnham agrees. Meanwhile, Awosakun reports Spock's shuttle is reaching the end of long-range sensors. The digital antibodies are working, slowly. Meanwhile, Burnham hurries down to engineering, finding it sealed off. She learns from Stamets that he, Reno, and Tilly are trapped, and that May has reattached itself to Tilly. When Reno remarks that they couldn't ask May what it wanted, Stamets suggests they could using the harmonic resonator he used to interface with the mycelial network. Burnham realizes this was what the sphere was trying to do, using the virus to get into Discovery's computer as a means to communicate. Saru's able to see a pattern in the ultraviolet lights, like letters in a sentence. He realizes it's no coincidence he began to feel sick just before they engaged the sphere. It's not a creature making first contact. It's making last contact. Meanwhile, In engineering, Stamets sets up the harmonic resonator, but the signal is weak. Reno suggests amplifying it with a cortical implant, essentially drilling a hole into Tilly's skull. Stamets sarcastically asks if she plans on fixing that with duct tape as well, before Tilly speaks up. Tilly thinks Reno is right. Then we do this together, Stamets replies. Hoping for a laser scalpel somewhere in the room, the only thing Reno could find is a power drill. Uh? Stamets points Reno to the first aid kit to sterilize the drill bit. Meanwhile, on the bridge, shields are up. Great. But they were still locked in place by the stasis field. Sucks. Awosakun reports power fluctuations. Non adds that there were still two dozen crew trapped below decks, with life support failing. Reese detects no identifiable weapon signatures, but an energy buildup inside the sphere, spiking 10,000 Kelvin and rising. Pike orders all non-essential power to weapons. Saru and Burnham enter and ask Pike to hold fire. The sphere was attempting to communicate with them, not destroy them. Whoa, that was close. <laughs> Saru explains that he could feel the sphere reaching out, trying to tell them something before it died. With Spock's shuttle six minutes from leaving sensor range, Pike tells them to make it fast. Saru displays the ultraviolet light patterns he has been seeing on the view screen and patches them through the Universal Translator, showing a multitude of languages. The sphere, he explains, was trying to use Discovery's computer to communicate with them, but it had overloaded them with info. If they lowered shields and allowed it full access, it could interface fully with the ship. Pike is suspicious. Don't be 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 suspicious. In engineering, Reno builds an amplified cortical implant. Stamets asks Tilly to sing her favorite song. Together, they sing David Bowie's Space Oddity as he drills the hole into her head. Tilly begins speaking with the voice of May, 
which identifies itself as belonging to a species called the Jasep, which was threatened by an alien intruder that began appearing at random intervals and damaging their ecosystem. Stamets asks if they were trying to reach out for help to stop a destructive presence, to which May replies that Stamets was the destructive presence through his use of the spore drive. May broke through the network trying to allow May to deliver a message to Stamets. Stamets tells May that he can fix the problem if it would let Tilly go. May refuses. Sucks! When Reno attempts to use a plasma torch, the parasite spreads, enveloping Tilly's entire body. Great! On the bridge, Burnham reports the sphere's internal temperature is now the same as a sun, indicating possible core collapse. Saru pleads with Pike to allow them to play their part in its destiny, to ensure it will be remembered. Pike ultimately defers to Saru and Burnham's judgment, but orders Detmer to prepare to overload the warp core and eject it to destroy the sphere if things go wrong, and to prepare to ride the resulting shockwave. Saru instructs Detmer to lower the shields and orders Wosakun to divert all computer power to comms. The library computers begin accepting the data operating at 20% above maximum. Whatever the sphere was sending, Burnham reports they're getting everything. What do you mean everything? EVERYTHING! The transmission completes just as the sphere explodes. <laughs> Saru says the light of its destruction was like music, to which Pike agrees, then wonders how they're alive to see it. Burnham reports that a nanosecond before detonation, the sphere reversed the polarity of its stasis field to push Discovery clear. How convenient! Its final act was to save them, so that its story could be told. I guess. In engineering, Stamets uses the plasma torch to cut open the parasite, which releases a puff of spores into his and Reno's faces, and pulls Tilly out, then reports to Burnham that Tilly was alright. With the sphere gone, Saru tells Burnham it's now his turn and asks her to take him to his quarters. The entire bridge crew rises, watching as Burnham helps Saru into the turbo lift. In his quarters, Saru shows Burnham a flower from his homeworld. He feels he lost himself by focusing on being the best Kelpian in Starfleet. Burnham says he found himself among the stars, his strength, his bravery, saved many lives, including hers. Saru then points Burnham to a Kelpian knife he kept in a drawer and asks her to use it to sever his ganglia so he could die in peace before the pain and madness overtook him. Burnham breaks down, admitting Saru is family to her. Saru's apologetic, saying he'd do it himself if he wasn't too weak. He asks Burnham to promise him that she would mend her relations with Spock. She does. As this happens, Saru's ganglia wither and fall out on their own. Saru is confused, thinking he should be dead, and both he and Burnham break down in relieved laughter. In sickbay, Pollard tells Saru that his vitals have returned to normal and asks how he feels. Saru confesses that his fear was gone. More than that, he felt power. Pollard certifies him fit for duty. I guess. To Burnham's earlier question of why he couldn't go home, Saru promised Giorgio that he'd uphold the Prime Directive. 
But if what they had accepted as the truth was in fact a lie, he wonders, what would it mean for the Kelpian people and their world? Burnham finds Pike in his ready room. He compares the sphere's info to the Dead Sea Scrolls, remarking that Federation scientists would be studying it for centuries. Burnham replies that the last thing the sphere had seen before its death was Spock's shuttle, and Burnham had been able to track down its trajectory. Pike calls the bridge with the new coordinates. Meanwhile, back in engineering, Stamets remarks it was time to close the door to the mycelial network. Tilly begins hearing May's voice again, seeing her for a moment, and then she was gone. Stamets and Reno tell her she was still coming down off the hallucinogen. But Tilly insists something's not right. Stamets and Reno, increasingly dazed, remark on one another's aura and note dust on their faces. So Stamets realizes that May dosed them and tells Reno to slap him to focus him enough to get to the med kit, giving himself and Reno a dose from a hypospray. As their minds clear, they both realize Tilly's been consumed by May. Interesting. Oh my gosh, you guys, I am so excited to tell you about this. Hey folks, it's your old pal, Mr. Todd A. Davis here from the Computer Resume Podcast. Get ready to boldly go where, well, thousands have gone before. It's TrekFest 38! Yay! June 23rd and 24th in Riverside, Iowa. Hey! Is this heaven? No. Iowa. Come enjoy all kinds of free activities for you and your whole family. This year's event will feature Chase Masterson from Deep Space Nine, some of the best bands in the area on the Riverside Casino and Golf Resort sponsored main stage, food, drinks, and yours truly will be doing some hosting and emceeing. I'll be upset if you don't come get a selfie with me. For more info about this year's Trek Fest, visit them on Facebook at Riverside Trek Fest or on the web at trekfest.org. That's T-R-E-K-F-E-S-T dot org. Riverside isn't just where the best begins, it's where Trek begins. Now, back to the show. So yeah, we see a lot of different things going on here in this episode where number one, has been doing some investigating sort of behind the scenes and trying to find out some stuff about what's going on with Spock and uh, sort of setting the stage for what's to come in terms of, you know, Spock's accused of murder. This is, this is new territory for us. Like what, what is going on? We've, we've known Spock as this sort of beacon of uh, calmness and, uh, you know, sort of this Zen attitude, this whole thing. So this seems very out of character for Spock. Uh, meanwhile, in engineering, we've got stuff going on with Tilly and it's getting weird, man. It's getting real, real weird. Uh, now that we're in spoiler territory, uh, let's dive in. What, what are your thoughts jumping in on all the nitty gritty of this particular episode? For me personally, like I said, I think I think Tilly, you know, is one of the key roles and aspects in this. Um, and then if there was a second person here, you know, Saru would be another one. You know, this this guy from the parts of the ship of the Discovery, where it's at, you know, going into, you know, the proximity of the Red Angel and, you know, being in that area. Um, he's suffering some of that as well. 
um, and Burnham steps in and, you know, is there by his side, you know, through these struggles of, you know, falling down and being, you know, on a hospital bed and helping him out through that and seeing all the, the just dynamic events that happen in this episode um, and really kind of put um, Christopher Pike in a situation where, what do you do? Um, you know, you, you went to destroy this thing. Um, but like now we're finding out like certain things and dynamics of it. And then eventually like getting close proximity enough to the point where a dynamic language barrier happens and Burnham's speaking Klingon. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? And you know, like all other cast members are like speaking different languages. Um, and it's just, it's just amazing to see um what what they choose to do in this episode um and tilly going in her her works of having a blob called may of the mycelium network latch on to tilly of all people it's like why tilly you know um yeah you know there's other people in the room um the way the mycelium kind of works through the discovery i feel like it's kind of a lucid um you know kind of um aspect to it it's like couldn't this maybe have traveled through a vent somewhere, chosen a different character, possibly maybe made its way to a hallway. Um, maybe Anson or Anson Munt was um, in the hallway there, the corridor of the discovery walking around, or like you said, number one, when she was doing investigating, but it chose Tilly. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's an interesting thing, you know, how, how, you know, it was chosen or how Tilly was chosen for that, be it, you know, her work in the mycelial network, uh, there in engineering and all of that stuff. Uh, I want to go back to something we talked, you, you briefly mentioned, um, you know, the sphere that they approach tries to make contact. And one of the ways it does that is it messes around with the universal translator. Uh, and it's got everybody speaking all these different types of, you know, many different types of languages. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, when people are very different, you've got the Trek fans from Riverside uh, versus Trek fans from Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I am a country mouse my, uh, myself from South Carolina. Uh, so my first trip out to L.A. was an eye opening experience. Uh, you know, having been in Riverside uh, for as long as you have your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, because of Trek Fest, you've seen a lot of people come in from different corners of the globe. Uh, have have there been a lot of inter- interesting interactions in terms of, oh, this person's really different from how I am or, you know, any sort of culture shock type things, you know, seeing seeing an L.A. fan or a New York fan or somebody from another country uh, coming to Riverside uh, and interacting with with everybody how's that how has that played out have there been any interesting uh interactions there with people from around the world you know or even or even the actors themselves <laughs> right um so something that i can say you know um it's it's really neat to see the dynamic that the celebrity aspect when they come to town um you know it's like a breath of fresh air traffic's a little bit slower you know more laid back yeah you can enjoy yourself you can be who you are granted well, somebody possibly look at you differently a little bit. Yes, but we are an embracing area, you know, um, and it's one of those things where JG Hertzler and Robert O'Reilly, when they came out and they were getting their makeup on, 
and my mom, she has a beauty salon in our basement and they're putting it on down there. They're like, you have space for us. Like, why are we staying in a hotel in Iowa city? Like, <laughs> so they ended up staying the rest of the trip at my parents' house that they were here for one of the Trek fests. So they oh, stayed for great. like three nights at Trek during Trek fest at my parents' house. And so I remember like being in the living room while my parents chit chatted with JG Hertzler and Robert O'Reilly, just like normal human beings. Um, while I was sitting there watching probably some ESPN highlights and they were having adult beverages at the time around the table. And it was like, how cool is this now looking back on it when probably like I kind of turned a blind eye to it as like, I'm not fully engaged in this, but like, it is pretty cool to have a couple of celebrities sitting at the table. And even on George Takai, when he came out to Iowa, you know, um, I think it struck his partner, um, and agent booking agent, Brad, a little bit like by the, um, off guard you know he was he was like we, we have a timeline and it's like this listen like we have a we have a um loose guideline that we guide you through the weekend but we're not dragging you along from event to event um you know if an event goes over you know we can make up for that time elsewhere um and yeah i i think That's you know great. people people coming into the community you know i love to see somebody get all decked out and it's like you know, I'd love to see more cosplayers, you know, because I would love this event to really establish that kind of ground that needs to be broke. Sem similar to this episode here, um, because I think body language, you know, um, in this episode is one of the big things that you have to understand and see like where people's stances are. Because, you know, um, Christopher Pike wanted like when they got close to that thing, he's like, I think we should just destroy it. Whatever it's doing to the discovery is like too much, you know. And then characters like Burnham and, you know, these very, very heavily involved characters were saying, like, we can't destroy it. We have to figure out what it what its purpose is and like what it's trying to tell us. Yeah. And then like you have, like you said, that dynamic in engineering, like um, with um, Reno and Stamens. And it's like, what what's what's going on on the ship? You know, so and that's kind of like what goes on at Trekfest. Well, each year it's different. You know, um, you don't know what characters are going to come out. Um you know, and you don't know what the um, level of acceptance is going to be, you know, the body language, like, you know, what's that barrier going to look like? Um, right. And I think that this episode breaks down barriers, um, which is huge. Yeah. I, you know, it's, you know, for a lot of, for a lot of folks out there who maybe don't want to acknowledge the differences in people or, you know, think that people from, this particular area of the country are weird or these, this particular area of the country is, you know, super aggressive or any of these things, but keep in mind the opening of star Trek to boldly go to seek out new life, new civilizations, like learning about each other, you know, and being able to communicate with each other. That's such an important part of the whole Trek experience, you know, to, to be into Trek and be like, oh, but I'm not dealing with these people. Well, okay. The, it's not really keeping with the spirit of Trek, is it? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I go back to, and mostly because I love Tignataro, who, who plays Jet Reno. Um, such a wonderful, wonderful comedian. But she totally, her dry sort of delivery, you know, juxtaposed with, uh, Anthony Rapp as Stamets. I absolutely love their interaction back and forth. But at the same time, when um, 
you know, when things go wrong and they're, they go, they shift into crisis mode, they are able to work together and put things aside and say, Hey, we've got a crew member in trouble. We got to figure this out. And it's, it's a really nice, it's a really nice interaction to see. And it's actually, you know, it can be quite humorous, but at the same time, it's actually kind of reassuring of like, Hey, you can work together with people. It's, it's okay to say, Hey, we're different, but you know, big picture here, we've got to, we've got to deal with this thing. Um, what else, what else stuck out to you about this episode? I know we see, we see Saru what with what starts as a mild cold, but we actually find out that this is part of his, um, his, his physiology as they get to a certain point and then they are, they're ready to die. Um, but we see through Saru and his interaction or his exposure to this sphere reveals that it's not this, this part of his, upbringing this part of his life this part of his planet's culture has been a lie this whole time um you know it's easy to think back you know to when you were kids if you if you had parents who were big on the whole santa claus thing and when you found out santa wasn't real sorry if i if i spoiled that for anybody listening but you know when you've got stuff like that where you know, you've been led to believe this one particular thing and then through your experiences find out, oh, it's not that way. What about this stuck out to you? Everything that Saru goes through in this episode, what what jumps out at you? I really think, you know, that dynamic really jumped out of the Burnham relationship with Saru. Because yeah. leading up to it, Saru and Burnham really were butting heads. Um, mm, you know, yeah. Burnham being that... Re- rebellious character, how she came about being even on the ship, um, you know, that that whole um, going rogue and being a, a um, criminal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mean, yeah. <laughs> That's the exact word that I was looking for. Thank you. Like she was she was ousted in there, you know, and then yeah. brought on the ship and she had to earn her keep pretty much. And Saru has always thought of Burnham and a lesser liar questioned her um, throughout. But to see Burnham just be so affectionate and be there to care for Saru in these moments of weaknesses while this ship, like you said, the communicator was down. Yeah. Um, you understand that compassion that was there. And, you know, everybody on that ship had value because if they were all the same walks of life, your ship goes one direction. Yeah. And here, based on Saru, like you said, being sick, and I, I'm trying to think of what the the material was that she was. Oh, his drinking. his uh his threat ganglia. That's exactly it. Yeah, uh, and it's like for for those to start flaking off and growing, and you know, and to see that, it's just it, it blew my mind because it's like it it was a completely different direction that when approaching the the red angel that you thought was going to happen. Like never once when the cast was standing all around, you know, the deck or the upper deck of the um, discovery looking out there at it. It was like that. That's some crazy stuff. Like, you know, um, approaching the um, Romulan um, mining vessel in the Kelvin timeline. It's like you see this ginormous ship and you're just like, well, like it doesn't look like it's got like a bunch of um, photon torpedoes and stuff like that off of it. 
but that yeah. thing packs a punch, you know? And it's yeah. like, so it's like, what is this glowing red angel matter that's in front of the ship going to do, you know, um, yeah. that it, it just blows my mind. And like you said, I, I personally think that the Saru dynamic with Michael Burnham um, was a very, very powerful piece to this episode as well um, to kind of spin off in a different segment that the, the Tilly and the Reno and the statements were going through in their own kind of area of the ship um, and processing through. I think that that dynamic there really, really allowed this episode to have a lot of good value material in it Mm -hmm. for someone to pick up a lot of things that they might've missed throughout maybe the first couple episodes of this series. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it kind of piggybacks off of what we were talking about a few minutes ago with, you know, making those connections. Uh, you know, Saru finds that, you know, he he this big part of his life, this big part of his culture is he's it's all been a lie. So, you know, he's he's at this point where he thinks he's at death's door and he admits to uh, Burnham that he views her as a sister. And she's taken aback, but also so um, warmed by his thoughts because, yeah, all throughout season one, like she mutinies, the captain dies, George O, she dies. And then we've got, uh, you know, Saru, who we see through short treks, was recruited to Starfleet by George O. So he had a very interesting relationship with her as well. So when so when Burnham mutinies, she takes away Saru's new parental figure or, you know, comrade in arms or sister, what, you know, whatever label you want to, you want to put on that. But, you know, through this hardship, they're able to solidify, re-solidify that bond and admit to themselves and each other that you know, that they are family, that they consider each other family. It's actually a very sweet moment. Right. Um, and yeah, again, because they, those bridges were torn down, it took a while to build those bridges back. But here we see that, yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're back on, we're back on track with these, with these folks. And it's almost, it's almost like not to go keep going back to it, but I mean, for someone being a new Trek, it's almost like the Calvin timeline, the Kelvin timeline there is just where the dynamic of Spock associating with Captain Kirk or James T. Kirk at the time as being like this rogue individual, like trying to cheat his way to the top and be this like, you know, big figure before he's really ready for it. And then to have that dynamic where it's pushed into a role where he knows the future based on Leonard Nimoy being on the movie and saying you need each other you will become one of my dearest friends yeah. um, and i think that that was the moment in this episode that you really gained knowledge of that michael and saru are going to become dearest of friends grant they're going to have those differences but they allow themselves to have their opinions but move in the direction of positive rather than to bash heads back and forth and question each other. Yeah. I, I hope everybody is hearing all this, that even if somebody's different, <laughs> hear them out and you may find common ground and you can both move towards a positive end. Uh, man, this has been so great. Uh, did we, do you have anything else uh, about the episode before we move on? 
Um, you know, for me, I think I, I think that's pretty much, you know, a, a lot of it, you know, that dynamic to to associate there. Um, yeah. Can you do you know off top hand when um, this episode was released at? believe 2018 i've got my handy dandy list here perfect um, i'm not gonna make a fool out of myself here by saying it but it's like the it, quarantine february, that also it actually premiered february 7th 2019 the quarantine this was the pre-quarantine time yeah like there was a quarantine in this episode with may the mycelium blob that nobody knew what to do with so reno and you know like this was like a kind of dynamic event that like Star Trek fans might've been like, wow, I got exposed to quarantine before even quarantine, you know, kind yep. of thing. So <laughs> that was kind of a wild dynamic too, you know, having that aspect in there as well. Um, I think that, that was, that was kind of a cool segue. I was looking through some of our um, discussions about the episode before leading up to it. And I was like, Oh, like that's something that just stuck out to me. I was like, I should, I should ask that when this episode came out. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it has been really interesting, you know, talking about things that um, are happening currently that wind up in Trek, you know, we see where uh, some civil unrest, uh, the insurrection specifically um, some of the footage from CNN made it into strange new worlds. Um, and it was a very, it was a very poignant moment uh, for pike to go down to this planet that was having this big civil unrest and say hey look our planet experienced something too and it almost it almost destroyed us you know uh, but that is one thing about star trek it is very full of hope and even even when things are at their worst uh looking at star trek enterprise it came out two weeks uh two weeks after 9-11 uh, and it took some time because, I mean, everybody was pretty rattled by that. But by season three, they really started to dive into the nitty gritty of the thoughts and feelings that were very prevalent in at least, I, I mean, I won't speak, speak for, you know, other countries, but at least Americans minds, you know, of what is it, you know, what does it mean to be attacked? What does it mean to retaliate? What? what ends justify the means do the ends justify the means like and what all the different levels of things you know that come along with that so i think it's been it's been really interesting to see throughout the years because again uh you know star trek started in the mid 60s around uh you know around the vietnam era you know which was not long after world war ii and i've mentioned it before that it was a big deal to have a, a Russian, uh, a Russian comms officer sitting next to a Japanese pilot. Like that was, that was kind of a big deal for folks at the time. And then, you know, like I said, getting into uh new Trek or uh, not new Trek, but legacy Trek with TNG. Now we have a counselor on board on the bridge whose, you know, mental health was becoming an issue, you know, was becoming discussed and was becoming a more prevalent issue. Now here in new Trek, we're seeing all kinds of diversity and all kinds of different traumas that people have endured and social issues that are um, prevalent of the day. Uh, this is all new. This is all new stuff, but a lot of it seems familiar. And, you know, when it's put in the, uh, you know, when it's portrayed for us in Trek, I feel like we're able to sort of 
disconnect ourselves from the issues, but connect with the hope and with the ideas that are being presented. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, Does all that make sense? (laughs) Or am I just rambling now? (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, it it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I agree with you a hundred percent and like to see, for example, the, the character aspect of, I'm I'm not sure the name, he's definitely a minor character in the episode. Um, Bigger eyes, kind of lizard looking. um, Oh, uh, Linus. Linus. To yeah. see him on the bridge, like when everybody starts speaking different languages, like snap his head around and like, what was that? Like out <laughs> of just confusion, like, yeah, you're right. Like, yeah. I- <laughs> well, yeah, it's we see all of these characters go through um, quite a big ordeal while just trying to catch up with their with their long lost crewmate Spock. Uh, and of course, you know, all of these things, all of these stories are brought about by these wonderful actors and these wonderful creative folks. Uh, but as we do every week, lovingly, we ask the question, who do we blame? The story was written by Jordan Nardina, whose last episode was season one, episode 12, Vaulting Ambition, which we discussed with my nemesis from the BQN counselor, Amy Nelson, back on episode 98. And uh, working with Jordan was, of course, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts. Uh, They've been working, you know, on Discovery pretty much from the word go. Uh, Their last work was uh, Discovery season two, episode one, the beginning of this season, Brother, which we discussed with Star Trek superfan Kevin Hebenstreit back on episode 102. The teleplay was written by Alan McElroy, whose first credit was actually two credits, uh, was on Halloween 4, The Curse of Michael Myers from 1988. He wrote the story along with Danny Lipsius, Larry Ratner, and Benjamin Ruffner. Uh, He also wrote the screenplay on that, but he also had an uncredited role as a state trooper uh, at the ambulance crash site. Um, Travis, are are you a big horror fan? Do you like the Halloween movies? Personally, I can watch them, but I'm not a huge fan. Um, <laughs> and it's, and it's one of those things where I feel like sometimes you, you see horror producers or, um, story writers that also can make something beautiful. You know, it's like this, how can something go from so gory in your mind and like horrifying that it, it really puts in perspective of like, you know, you can flip a page to a different scenario. Um, yeah. yeah. So not a huge fan of it. Um, like if I was to put down a um, thing that I would say that these producers have put out there that you would get into a little bit later would be like the 21 jump street. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, that's the next thing I have noted here for uh, Alan McElroy is he worked on season four, episode 26 of, uh, 21 Jump Street, you know, the classic starring Johnny Depp and uh, some other folks there. Uh, but yeah, it, he also developed the live action and animated versions of Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Are Were you a were you a comic book kid growing up by any chance? No, I no. <laughs> I was not. Um, being being in Iowa, you're not really exposed to the, the big scene of it, especially in rural Iowa. Um, if you grow up in a, a town probably the size of mine, you know, maybe like 5,000 people or less. I mean, you're probably more of a G.I. Joe or 
grabbing a sports ball or, you know, um, you, you would possibly reciprocate more to like um, action figures and different things like that, rather than going to a comic book store, leaning over the glass and making smudge marks and like just eyeing that crisp, pristine magazine (laughs) that you've got to have. Um, It's one of those things where it, it really does um, put in perspective of where we're at. So I I think that like the comic book side of things, like, I just wasn't exposed enough to it. Like people will ask me sometimes like, Hey, I have this Star Trek comic book. Are you interested? And I said, if I was interested in comic books, like absolutely. And, you know, we have a great (laughs) museum that if you want to put it on loan in, that's great. Um, But like, I, I just don't have that sentimental value into a comic book. Like some people would. Yeah. I um, I'm indoor kid. Um, Both the, both the wife and I are, you know, from, from early raising our indoor kids. So I was a big uh, comic book kid growing up, but Todd McFarlane's Spawn was one that kind of, I read a couple of issues and it got a little bit weird, but um, yeah, it wasn't big on my radar. I was, a, I'm a big Batman fan uh, in terms of uh, my comic book love, uh, mostly, mostly centered around Batman. Um, now, as far as Alan McElroy, I am curious as to his next working experience, which was the Christian film based on the best-selling book Left Behind from 2000, starring Kirk Cameron. Uh, did you happen to see the uh, see or read Left Behind? I know that was a that was a really big book. I mean, oh gosh, over 20 years ago now, but. Uh, you know, here in South Carolina, we're kind of, you know, I've made the joke, you know, we're uh, in the buckle of the Bible belt, as it were. Um, but the Left Behind series was kind of a big deal. Did any of that hit Riverside, Iowa, the, uh, you know, Left Behind or anything like that? I don't think so. Currently, I just pulled it up on my computer right here so I could have an educated, um, just quick level overview of it. Was it a Antichrist film? Is that right? Uh, kind of yeah the the story that i remember is kind of uh the rapture happens so all the believers are you know called up to heaven and it's basically everybody who is left behind and they are trying to survive and it's sort of in the aftermath of the rapture what happens with these people so um so with that being said you know going back to this episode um you know beings you kind of i didn't want to bring it up if it wasn't going to cross like a boundary of the podcast, but like the tower of kind of Babel kind of like uh-huh. perspective here, you know, yeah. and also it's like, are these characters the one that are left behind, you know, oh. and do we ever, do we ever know kind of thing, you know, because you just brought this up, like the left behind from the rapture, you know, and it's just like, well, it's like maybe these characters are the ones that are left behind. Interesting. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, looking at, what the sphere does to the crew of the discovery. I mean, they've said that that sphere is practically ancient and, you know, there's no telling what all it has seen, what all it has learned. So conceivably it has been around since the biblical times. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating there every now and then there's a little religious nugget um that is presented through star trek and i always find those really interesting to explore i know a couple of episodes ago there was the episode new eden where uh pike wosakun and uh burnham go to this planet and they have this church that is basically built 
around this idea of the combination of all of Earth's religions. And it was a really fascinating exploration of even just on a surface level of just kind of like, well, we, you know, a lot of them actually overlap, you know, in ideologies and the idea of the stained glass windows were actually for folks who didn't know how to read. And that's, that's a really interesting way to, uh, you know, present beliefs of any kind. You know, we, we just finished talking about comic books. Those are kind of like glass uh, or stained glass windows for kids who had trouble reading. I know the listeners can't see, but I'm raising my hand right now. Uh, I'm not the strongest reader, Uh, but you know, comic books kind of really helped really helped me as a kid, you know, develop a joy of reading and then a joy of writing and a joy of uh, exploring the techniques of storytelling, you know, which led to my love of uh, presenting stories and narratives in other forms like stand-up comedy and stuff like that. So, you know, it's all, it's always a really fascinating exploration to, to see those kind of things come to light. Now, for Alan McElroy, one of his next projects was a bit of a was a bit of a return uh, to his uh, to his roots. He was actually working on the low budget fan film of Michael versus Jason. Now I know there was a Freddy versus Jason, which is actually a lot of fun, but this was Michael versus Jason. So Michael Myers versus Jason Voorhees. Um, in fact, I think, I, I, well, I found a link to it. So I'm going to include that in the show notes. If anybody is curious, you can actually, you can actually check out the, it's a little over half an hour fan film of Michael versus Jason. Did, did, you know, with the limited uh, stuff that you've got there in Riverside, uh, were there any sort of things like this? You know, those big show, you know, those big showdowns, those big like Titan type clashes that you thought, oh, you know, wouldn't it be cool if so-and-so fought so-and-so or something like that? Was there anything like that for you as a kid growing up? You know, it'd be like superhero reference, like, well, who would win <laughs> this, you know, battle? Um, of course. I believe that used to be like, it was either on MTV or Spike. It was like, celebrity showdown or whatever the animated characters that would yes. put them in the ring and it'd be like Abe Lincoln versus um you know um <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of another one that like George Washington and then they just get in this ring and they'd fight and you know it'd start with fists and then all of a sudden it'd be like well like honest Abe was maybe a lumberjack and he's got a, he's got an axe now and you know the other one's got a musket or something like that um yeah you know so yeah. like for me personally it was always like probably more so like superhero based it's like this like what about spider-man like in thor it's like this hold the hammer up like i i based on what i've seen probably not and usually it was like cross um cross genre or not cross Mm -hmm. genre i guess but cross um productions like dc was always with dc like stuff and then that so it's like it was always like superman and iron man it was like you know oh yeah spider-man and um let's just say the hulk or yeah you know, it was I just remember, like i remember there was a uh there was a batman versus captain america that was really interesting i think wolverine fought batman as well um there was uh, there was a thing called the, basically dc and marvel back in the day i want to say it was in the 90s or maybe early 2000s where they sort of crossed all their major characters and it was called the amalgam universe and so you got characters like Dark Claw, which were Wolverine and Batman. And you got 
uh, characters like Super Soldier, which were Superman and Captain America, Spider Boy, which was Spider, uh, which was Spider Man and Superboy, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, but yeah, those were really really fascinating. I think a lot of times now, especially in the world where D and D, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is making a be a big resurgence in the culture. Uh, there's enough things out there where in addition to playing through your own game and your own adventures, there's times where, Hey, I've designed this character like this horror movie character. You know, it's, I've designed Dracula uh, and you've got somebody else who goes, Oh, I've designed Frankenstein. Let's make them fight. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> and uh, I know for, you know, speaking for my gaming experience, those have been a lot of fun. Cause I, I, one of the things I do enjoy is the, is the universal classic monsters. Those are a lot of fun. Well, like, um, like character showdown, like you said, like a button mash, you know, um, where yeah. you'd have the two characters showdown too, like DC universe, you know, or like DC Marvel. And you'd sit there and you could put them together and say like, who's going to win this, you know? And, you know, a computer simulation might say something different, but like, I mean, my competitive nature, if I had a controller, like I'd probably be winning, but like, it doesn't yeah. matter if I was like Harley <laughs> Quinn or, you know, the Joker compared to Batman. It's like, I'm going to find a way. Like it doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. But, um, yeah. You so know, and I, you know, look, looking at, looking at that sort of thing, it always makes me think of like our real life Titans, which to me have always been the professional wrestlers. In fact, you know, uh, the next thing up for Alan McElroy he actually worked on WWE's first production, uh, The Marine, in 2006, starring someone, but I can't remember his name. And his name is John Cena! Oh, yeah, that's it. Thanks, Internet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, To be honest, I, I always love that clip of John Cena. Anytime anybody was like, oh, hey, who was that person, you know, who does the thing? And his name is John Cena. I always have to throw that in. And have you watched the 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 spoof clip that the prank call with the John Cena clip? Is that what you're referring yes. to? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That that is one of the best clips I think out there on the internet. And yeah, if I if I think of it when I'm having a bad day, that could be a clip that I'm like, I need to laugh. And it's like that lady was put through the ringer on that yes. clip by the John Cena. Um, um, you know, the, the, pu the push board of, or the soundboard, sorry, push board. Yes. Yes. Oh, they just destroyed this poor lady <laughs> so early in the morning, but she kept answering the phone. Right. <laughs> what are you doing? Like, oh gosh. Yeah. It's, it, you're absolutely right. There's a couple clips out there that if I'm having a bad day or, you know, got out of, uh, you know, woke up on the wrong side of the bed type of thing. I know that I can go to this one corner of the internet <laughs> and find this clip and it'll turn my mood around in a heartbeat for sure. Or like the um, energy of the ultimate warrior running down the main stage. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And then you've got characters like the flip side of that coin, the undertaker who just so slowly makes his way down to the ring. <laughs> the eerie feeling of that. Yeah. And then, like, he brings the lights up himself, like, oh, so for the partier, so but man. the partier, but like, um, quote unquote, badass. I don't know if I can say that, but yeah, yeah, out. um, Stone Cold Steve Austin smashing two beer cans together and just like going out yes. and opening up a can of whoop ass. That's like, man, <laughs> that guy's awesome, too. 
Yeah, there there's so many of those that are just uh so much fun. And you know, I think now now that there's definitely uh you know some of the other smaller wrestling promotions have come into prominence, um, you know, we're we're getting to see more of those uh from all different corners of the different corners of the globe, as it were. And uh it's been a lot of fun. Now, Alan McElroy went on to work on six of the wrong turn movies. I know the first one. I don't think I've seen any of those. Have you ever seen any of the wrong turn movies? I know the first one had Eliza Dishku that, and only because like that seemed to be a really popular poster at the time. Uh, did you see any of those movies? I just want to Google this before. Like, I think that I'm like, got to go on the right, right track here. But um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I totally have seen these um, scary movies. Um, so for, for me personally, the name sums it up and it's like this. Why'd you make that turn? <laughs> Like, why'd you make that damn turn? You know better than that. You know better than that. It's like, well, why'd you go down? Oh, why? hey, I'm on the interstate and I'm going to switch to this dirt road. Hey, our cabin's this way. We got a shortcut. It's like, no, no, listen, no. listen. Chainsaws, <laughs> barn swinging kind of stuff. We're interstate traveling. Like, we're following the beaten path that MapQuest says, like, this is a four-star review of your destination. It's like, you know, that's great. Like if it's a one, two star, it's like, that's sketchy. That's, that's too much. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. No, Um, I have seen the wrong turn movies and, you know, I think that that like almost like a stereotypical, like sports movie though, too. It's like, typically you see the character go through some traumatic event and somehow fight through or the team fight through, overcome the adversity and succeed. Um, The, the scary movie always seems to be, you, you do something dumb and puts you in the situation where it's like this, this all could have been solved with some common sense a little bit, like being a little street <laughs> smart. Like some of these characters in these scary movies is like too, too well-educated, you know? And it's like, yeah. sometimes that'll be a dangerous sword to stab on, like stab yourself on. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, so for Alan, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, for Alan McElroy, this is his first writing in the franchise, but not his last. So we'll see him again soon. Uh, also working on the teleplay was Andrew Colville, whose last work was uh, season two, episode three point of light, which we discussed last week on episode one Oh five. The episode was directed by Lee Rose uh, whose last work was season one, episode five, Choose Your Pain, uh, which I believe is the episode we were introduced to Harry Mudd as played by Rain Wilson. We discussed that episode with executive producer Kat Davis back on episode 91. What did you think of Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd? I, so I loved seeing a character that was well-recognized jump onto the screen um, as well as trying to bring my wife into watching the Star Trek Discovery series and ah. bringing her into it. She's a huge yeah. Office fan. And so when she saw Harry Mudd be like this outlaw and villain in the Star Trek universe. And, you know, I, I think it was awesome to see his character in there. I'm pretty sure he's a really big Star Trek fan as well. Um, and yeah, so it seems like it. That's kind of what brought him into the Star Trek universe. I almost... I almost want to say it was kind of one of those things where it's like, hey, like I've done some work. I'm pretty good. Like, will you let me have a spot? And it's like, <laughs> I don't know if there was like an audition for it or the character was kind of just developed around what he was able to do. But he knocked that character out of the park. 
I yeah, mean, with Tyler Ash in that in that cell there, like that was a very dramatic scene there. Such a great episode, and yes, that was a fantastic scene as well. Did I spoil I, something there, or was that like a past episode? I oh no, that yeah, that that all happened already. Yeah, no, okay. we're good. Yeah, th- those are fantastic episodes. If your if your wife is still on the fence, I highly recommend the short trek that Rain Wilson directed. Um, And of course, stars in um, where it is, you know, the further adventures of Harry Mudd. Um, I think it's called uh, The Escape Artist. And if she likes if she likes Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd, there's there's some more of that for you. Um, But yeah, uh, so guest stars, we I you know, we've got a few, but I narrowed it down to one. We've got Rachel and Cheryl as Commander Nan. Uh, she was actually a crew member of the Enterprise that came over with Pike there at the beginning of season two. Her first credit, uh, a semi-autobiographical film, Tough Love, uh, in 2005. She played the character of Trixie with two X's, if that describes a little bit about Tough Love. Uh, but she was also in 22 episodes of Rookie Blue. Five episodes of Winona Earp, seven episodes of Killjoys, ten episodes of Nurses, uh, and this is her second appearance in the franchise, but not her last. Her first appearance was actually uh, the season two opener that was episode one, Brother, which we've already talked about as well. So, Travis, we come now to the question that we ask every week, is this essential viewing. If somebody is sitting down and working their way through Star Trek for the very first time and they come to this episode, is this an episode that they have to see or can they skip it? I think it's a loaded question, Todd. Um, It can be taken a couple different ways. You know, um, if I was someone that has never seen Star Trek and jumped into, let's say, a random episode, is this essential? No. Um, If I was someone that was watching Discovery from beginning to end of the series in chronological order of what takes place. It is absolutely essential. Um, There's a lot of dynamic events that take place. You understand certain characters and their roles a little bit more. Um, You understand the dynamic of different um, aspects and personalities that clash, but now the barriers are broken down. And how, if you didn't watch this episode, and let's say that you skipped it and you saw the dynamic of Saru and Burnham bitter, like rivals and a lot of aspects that they do on the ship. Um, I don't want to say a one up aspect, but almost um, almost just like a very, very nuisance between the two of them that they're always going back and forth at each other. And I don't think it's like on purpose. I think it's more so just because the mutiny, Michael Burnham and the by the books Saru and Mm. so knowledgeable and the knowledgeable side is almost like the street smarts of the Michael Burnham side come together and avoid the wrong turn scenarios. Um, So it's like coming full circle. And if you miss this episode and you're going through the the discovery series, you you missed a good one. Um, Yeah. I think with, uh, uh, I I'm going to echo that as well. I, you know, I've heard some, I've heard some complaints before from different Trek viewers about discovery being the first serialized star Trek in that it's a water cooler show. You can't really skip one. You kind of have to watch all of them, which is, 
which is good. Uh, you know, we're, you know, we're experimenting with new forms of storytelling in terms of Trek. Trek has been known as very episodic, um, you know, uh, Deep Space Nine had uh, some overarching themes, especially with the Dominion War. Um, you know, Enterprise a few years later had the same thing. Season three, season three is essentially almost completely serialized with the Zindi War. Uh, but here with Discovery, this is the first serialized track. And yeah, you kind of have to watch. You kind of have to watch all of them. There's not a lot of what they call bottle episodes, basically a self-contained uh, a self-contained story. In fact, uh, in fact, maybe the only bottle episode is actually the other episode with Harry Mudd. Um, believe that's uh, uh, magic to make the sanest man go mad, uh, where it's dealing with him. And there's a little bit of a time travel element. I don't want to spoil it uh, for anybody out there who hasn't seen that, although it is really good. <laughs> and it's an older episode. You should have seen it by now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you know, for the narrative of Discovery, it is absolutely essential. Um, in terms of character arcs, I think the ones to really uh, focus on here are Saru. I mean, you're going to focus on Burnham anyway. She's the main protagonist of Discovery. We see a lot of the narrative through her eyes. But besides Burnham, I think the characters that we're really looking at here are Saru uh, and then also Tilly. And then, um, you know, it's coming down the road, but we get a lot of information and some interesting plot elements from this sphere uh, that come into play down the road. Uh, so anyway, Travis, thank you so much for spending, um, you know, almost two hours with me talking about uh, Trek. Uh, I'm really, really thankful that you were able to uh, make time to do this uh, with us tonight. Do you have any parting thoughts before we start wrapping it up? Any thoughts about this episode, uh, the series, the franchise, your experience on this podcast? Anything uh, before we go? Well, first of all, I would say that if you're not already a subscriber or updated on the list of the Todd A. Davis computer resume podcast um, to do so, um, also, I think that the knowledge and level of just energy that you bring to the the average viewer of Star Trek is great. Um, breaking it down allows, like in this episode, barriers to be broken. Um, you can put it in perspective that other people have seen before. Um, you know, we can break it down and say, you know, um, this really fits a certain event that's happened to me or a movie or a book, or something outside the scope of Star Trek to really engage the listener, the viewer, um, a more in-depth story of what Star Trek and your podcast is about. So it's been great to be on here. Um, also, I mean, it's going to be great to physically meet you in yes. at Trek Fest <laughs> um, 38. So that's, that's huge. You're going to be here as a guest and as a guest of honor and be able to be a part of all the Star Trek activities that we have that take place over the weekend. Um, you I'm know, really excited, starting I'm really on, excited about it. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. Um, so we'll have great music. We'll have um, Chase Madison's going to be here with us this year. Um, so that's huge. Her agent, as well as multiple other people's agents in the Star Trek community um, is a part of our event as well. 
Um, it allows us to get in contact with her and kind of use her network to bridge that gap and really see that as well as if you're coming as a Star Trek fan, you can come out and see John Paladin and get signed up for his makeup and costume um, um, sessions that he's doing. And so that's a big hit for a lot of people. Um, they're able to do that and kind of get it to experience what it's like to be in the makeup chair with a professional makeup artist that, you know, um, he's done anything from a Vulcan to a Klingon, you know, so it's like it's pretty in depth there, you know? Um, and the biggest thing is, is that, I mean, for you get subscribed, um, be a member of the Todd A. Davis, um, experience here, you know, um, on the computer resume podcast. And for me personally, you know, the biggest thing that I'd like to plug is, um, Riverside Trek Fest, um, on social media platforms of Instagram, Facebook. Um, we don't do a lot of other platforms currently right now. Um, our website, I know you're going to plug it, but it's trekfest.org. Um, and so we're on the web there as well. Um, and like I said, we're kind of a grassroots festival. It's kind of a word of mouth thing. It's kind of just spread as of social media since my presence on here and getting more younger people engaged with it. Um, and we're just looking forward to the direction that it's going to take our event and going into the future, um, seeing what the next generation holds. It might be a strange new world, but um, we're going to discover it together. So that's the biggest thing that we got to be a part of. That's awesome. Well, folks, next week we will be joined by one of To Proudly Go's Star Trek drag superstars. Flip Kiki will be here to discuss Discovery Season 2, Episode 5, Saints of Imperfection, which is available exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Travis, hit him one more time with that. Uh, website and uh, and any other details that folks need to know about Trek Fest. Yeah, so Trek Fest is going to be the last weekend of June. Every single year, it's the last weekend of June. So this weekend or this year's weekend is June 22nd of Thursday night up until the 24th through the Saturday. Um, if you're looking for accommodations, the Riverside Casino is only seven minutes away from the park where a lot of the activities take place. Iowa City's within 15 minutes. Um, the nearest airport is Cedar Rapids, um, which is 35 minutes away. Um, and so there's a lot of flights that go in and out of there. There's some other airports that are another small airport like Cedar Rapids that are in the nearby area. Um, but know that we are one of the entry level Trek and sci-fi conventions that one can go to. Um, we're an event that is free of cost. A lot of our events, you just walk right in the door, which is a huge thing for a lot of people, especially if you're looking for a road trip to get away with the family. Um, there's campgrounds nearby. Um, these experiences might not be something that um, you would get if you were to go out to LA or maybe I think it's Dragon Con in Atlanta. Um, I mean, it's you pay at the door, you pay for your autographs, you pay for the meet and greets, you pay for the picture. Um, you might pay for some exclusive badges and different things like that. But I mean, you get to experience the whole thing this this event. And for us, the only charge is if you want to get an autograph or photo with a celebrity. Um, it's anywhere currently right now. It's never been above $40 that we charged. Um, but over the course of the weekend, you get to engage in that celebrity's presence and really be there. And so um, a lot of details can be found out at our trekfest.org um, website there, as well as we post weekly and as well try to engage our customers that come. I shouldn't say customers. We'll time that one out. But for our people that come to experience our event, I think it's it's a huge deal to be present on our social media platforms. For example, our Instagram and our Facebook. Our Facebook, we post weekly. 
it is Trek Fest or Riverside Trek Fest. And going with that, it also leads into our Instagram with pictures and you can kind of see where it's led up to and really kind of where it started. You know, there's pictures of Trek Fest fans that have been on our stage that were in our costume contest. And this was before our stage was a stage. It was a shell. Like there was no roof to it. Now we have a roof to it. We have a backdrop. Um, so it's great. Um, we, I try to get on there and answer questions. If you want to engage with me on there about like vending space, if you want to engage about the costume contest or the meet and greet or the parade, which is a great thing for Star Trek and sci-fi people alike to get registered for the parade and show off your costume, leading you down main strip of Riverside to go through. And then at the end of that parade route, meet and greet the celebrities while in your costume and they're in their costume and you can get your photo taken right beside them um, right at the end of the parade route before the costume contest. I think that's a huge aspect to it. It's like, you know, not only do I get to like be a part of the event, like I get to experience it and be surrounded by it, you know, and I guess the beauty of our event too, almost like this episode that we just talked about, we have people that are coming from the cornfields and the small town rural community that are seeing somebody dressed as Michael Burnham walk down main street of our town during our parade. And it's like this, you get looks, it would be almost like a, how do you want to say it? A, a different species landing on earth and just like walking through at times, seeing some of the costumes that come through, which is great. You know, it, it really puts it in perspective, but like I said, trekfest.org and Riverside Trek Fest on Facebook and Instagram is great places to get in contact with us. Um, if you have more detailed questions, our email is on our Facebook as well. You can get in contact with us. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. From all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you at Tech Forward. Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop. And our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn. And the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods. And we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?